You're listening to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast's Big Conversations. I'm Haley Broughton. And I'm Alan Holder. Today on the podcast, we will be speaking with Professor Ryan Kahlo and Mr. David O'Hare. Professor Kahlo and Mr. O'Hare are two of the five co-authors of the article entitled, Is Tricking a Robot Hacking? from our journal's recent Volume 34, Issue 3. The other three authors are Ivan Iftimov, a PhD student at the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington. Professor Todio Shikono, also of the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering, and Erlance Fernandez, assistant professor in the Department of Computer Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Kahlo is the Lane Powell and D. Wayne Gittinger Endowed Professor at the University of Washington School of Law. Before becoming a professor in 2012, Professor Kahlo worked as research director and fellow at Stanford Law's Center for Internet and Society. Earlier, he was an associate at Covington and Burling's Washington, D.C. office, and he clerked for the Honorable Judge R. Guy Cole, Jr. of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Professor Kahlo graduated from the University of Michigan Law School in 2005. David O'Hare is a trademark and copyright associate at Kenobi Martin's Seattle office. He graduated from the University of Washington School of Law in 2019. While in law school, Mr. O'Hare was the chief online editor of the University of Washington's Journal of Law, Technology, and Arts. Here is our big conversation with Professor Ryan Kahlo and Mr. David O'Hare, co-authors of Is Tricking a Robot Hacking? So I guess for starters, we'd like it if y'all could give us a broad statement just about the issues or problems that you were both aiming to address in this article. For for this article, obviously we talked about adversarial machine learning and legal liability of that, but but I think uh, the big issue we were talking about is because we wrote this with three computer scientists, it was about the you know potential liability for you know, testing and research and how most of the case law and academia around that just is summarized with, it's all ambiguous right now with liability. And so I think that's kind of the umbrella of what we looked at is there, there's, uh, you know, this testing and research that needs to be done. Here's this hacking law. How do those get married and what are the issues with that? What I would say is that law and technology um, as a discipline tends to proceed in a kind of a regular way. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And it takes this formula of there's this emerging technology, in this case, machine learning, and in particular, adversarial machine learning. And uh, there's an existing set of laws. Um, and that change to technology um, winds up causing us to have to revisit the adequacy of laws that after all were written um, at a time uh, of very different technology, in this case, dramatically so since it was the mid um, 80s. Um, and so, um, as David said, you know, we really tried to, to draw from the technical expertise of the computer scientists to tell us what the precise state of the technology is. But then David and I, as um, legal scholars, uh, our responsibility was to see where there was a mismatch between the affordances of the technology and, and the law itself, uh, and where in particular that creates um, concern, concern about researchers 
uh, research being chilled or concern about um, companies not having adequately strong compute, you know, security standards. I'm curious about uh, how you bridge that gap in understanding between the computer scientists and yourselves in terms of the laws around this. David and I, he as a student and and I at the time as a as a faculty member, were both uh, members of the Tech Policy Lab at the University of Washington, and the Tech Policy Lab um, puts together interdisciplinary teams to work on cutting edge issues of technology policy. Um, And so we have a lot of experience integrating multiple disciplines. Um, The founding members of the Tech Policy Lab, one of them is our co-author, Yoshi Kono, Tadayoshi Kono. The other is uh, in in computer science and engineering. And the other is uh, Batia Friedman, who is an information scientist. And, And the three of us have, you know, had a lot of experience with this. Um, and so we often will bring in the technologists to carefully define the technology, talk about what is contingent about it rather than, you know, uh, defining. Um, and uh, and then only once we really have a, our, our arms around sort of the what the technology is, what it what has to be true about it, what doesn't have to be true about it, um, you know, then it structures a question that that David and I can investigate. But David, I mean, if you want to reflect on your experience working across disciplines, I'd love to hear it too. Yeah, I mean, obviously, echo all of that. And the I think the Tech Policy Lab is a very unique, you know, kind of grouping of people. And what I saw, which was really interesting, is the, you know, the technology people we did work with were very interested in the legal aspect of it as well and very willing to kind of dive in into that and go through and especially in drafting this paper um, multiple iterations of drafting their explanations of the technology in a more digestible way for maybe the legal community as a whole Um, so that was very interesting working uh, with them and seeing a very different world and how those two can match up we were about to ask you um, for a working definition of the technology so that we um, and our listeners could follow your argument. But I find it interesting that you mentioned that you bring in the computer scientists to say what is contingent about the technology as opposed to just defining it. So can you expand a little bit on that distinction um, and sort of the interesting parts about the technology that informed the rest of, of the paper? Sure. I mean, so imagine this, like somebody asks you, can you, can you regulate AI, you know, and you're going to really be able to easily deflect that question if you want to. And you can be like, how can you regulate AI? Isn't that, AI is not like a thing, like a train. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, AI is not like a, a genie in a bottle that you open it up and just tell the AI what to do. You can't regulate it. That doesn't make sense. You know? And so it's easy to start, you know, if you, if you define it too, too generally, right. Um, versus if you say, um, you know, what would, what would be an appropriate regulatory response to um, uh, Amazon Echo and Alexa in the home, you know, and you might say, okay, well, let's think about that for a moment. You know, what, what is the relationship between the consumer and Amazon? How does Amazon interact with third parties like the government and, and so on? Um, and so you, 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 you need to define something at the appropriate level of generality uh, before you can, before you can figure out what, your legal analysis um, has to do with. And I think that that's not often done in law and technology. Just people just, you know, say, I'm looking at augmented reality. I'm looking at, you know, artificial intelligence. 
And so what we do is we talk about like, okay, well, artificial intelligence is a set of techniques that are aimed to approximate some aspect of human or animal cognition using a machine. Machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence that works roughly by training a model with a ton of data um, and then applying that trained model uh, to perform a pattern recognition function um, on, uh, on either data that's been held back or, or novel new data. Um, and so uh, what uh, adversarial machine learning is, is when you attempt to ascertain how a model works and then you purposely fool it. And so, you know, we, we have uh, on the paper a person who's getting their, their PhD in adversarial machine learning. You know what I mean? And, 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 and so um, the lead author, um, Yvonne, and, 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 and so he was able to sort of carefully describe how it works right now, how it could work. Because again, if, if what we say is, you know, you know um, we got to regulate deep fakes. And then what we mean by deep fakes is like the precise way that deep fakes work right this moment. Right. You know what I mean? Like and the, the, the exact technique of, of, of GANs. You know, like that. That's how we're going to regulate. And then that technology just subtly shifts in such a way that you know. And so, if you get the, if you get the general if you get the level of generality wrong, if you describe the technology um, at the inappropriate level, um, you you fail to see what is about it that is contingent and what about it is sort of core. And I think that's critical to doing a legal analysis. And so, what we figured out was, look, you know, for the purposes of law. What's novel here is the ability to get a system to misbehave, to behave in a way that you want rather than the way it's designed, not by hacking into it, not by bypassing a security protocol, but through other, some other means that, that uses the understanding of the model purposely against it. And we listed out a number of different um, examples of adversarial machine learning techniques. You know, that, that gets at the core of what the law cares about. You know, what the law cares about is that the CFAA is outdated. You know what I mean? Not that like, you know, it would, so anyway, so it, 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 it I, I found that you can, you can understand technology well enough through conversation, but there's nothing like having a dedicated set of co-authors who really get it. I have a follow-up because I, I thought one thing that was pretty amazing about the article was that this is essentially the first attempt to create a taxonomy for this kind of um, these kind of legal issues, right? And so I'm curious if since the paper has been published, if you found others to begin to use some of the definitions that you wrote about and published. So I, I will just quickly say that I that I have had conversations with lawmakers, state and federal, and explained to them the inadequacy of the of the definition and, and the like. Um, and I, I, I anticipate that if there were new laws related to security standards or, or anti-hacking, that that this that this would be would be useful. I don't know if you wanted to, to add anything else, David, but I mean, that's, that's sort of, it, it, you know, there, there, as far as I know, since the publication uh, last year, there just hasn't been, you know, and now, now there, there is, a, I think NIST is looking at um, definitions of security. And I think that this conversation will be in the, in the mix there, right? Because, you know, if you were to define security today and leave out adversarial machine learning, that would be a very significant omission. 
Yeah. Um, I have not been having discussions with state and federal lawmakers. So <laughs> no update on my end. The, the team that wrote this paper has been circulating um, uh, different reports and, and, and news stories that have, that have cited to it. And so I think it's percolating in the conversation, but I don't know that any new laws or standards have been written that have relied upon it yet, but we wouldn't expect that just yet. Got it. And then for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, um, could you ex- give a high level overview of the law, um, perhaps within the context of your article, and then also why you describe it as outdated? Sure. Um, Ryan, I can take the first stab at this. Yeah, basically the CFAA or Computer Fraud and Abuse Act can be thought of as just the nation's umbrella anti-hacking law. If it sounds broad, it's because it is broad. Um, you know, basically it, it set out in the 80s to to prevent hacking of primarily government um, computers and, you know, financial institution computers, uh, which they labeled uh, protected computers. Um, but in reality, uh, the law also protects against, uh, let's just say hacking uh, of anything that really can be defined as a computer, as well as affecting interstate commerce, um, which has been defined as roughly anything that can be defined as a computer, uh, cell phones, personal computers, etc. So that's kind of the general overview. It's to prevent hacking, damaging, intrusion to computers uh, and government computers. Um, and so we kind of took a, we looked at that for our paper, um, I think in part because it's often the law that gets cherry picked into any conversation or any prosecution of any intrusion to anything connected to the internet um, or just anything that can be defined as a computer, which has, you know, there's a lot of criticism about it because it's been applied very broadly. And that's why we looked at it is because these techniques that we're looking at um, and that the computer scientists are looking at on face might not, um, you know, a reasonable person might not say that's that's hacking. Um, But when we look at this law that's been applied so broadly, that's really when the questions come up is does that fit in to this law? The, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is the national anti-hacking law, it, 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 but we, we were careful, I think, in the paper to, to show that this, this idea of um, having to bypass the security protocol as the definition of hacking is, is m- much broader, right? So we even cited to sort of international cybersecurity standards where that was the case. Um, and uh, uh, and and this, this Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is written on purpose to be very broad indeed, again, as David said, so that it's like any time that you exceed authorization or engage in unauthorized access in a protected computer, if it's a government computer, you know, that's it. No, no more. It's already a violation. If it's a not government computer, then you have to sort of cause some additional mischief. Um and uh, and so it's like it's so it's so broad. It's by all these different things that like it is very interesting that it technically does not reach adversarial machine learning, right? I mean, having been read, having been written so broadly, 
um, to, to survive actually relatively well for, for so, for such a long time, for 40 years, you know, nearly that it's, it's remarkable that, that this sort of the, the direction that, that security, uh, the direction that hacking is going, it doesn't reach it finally. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's why we, but we, we really just use the CFAA as a stand in for the idea that the law treats bypassing a security protocol as the core definition of hacking. I'm curious about uh, what the most commonplace or seemingly harmless ways a regular user uh, could potentially be hacking artificial intelligence using machine learning. The, the innocuous example we use in the paper is um, imagine that you uh, go to a airport and you're wearing uh, makeup that thwarts facial recognition. You know what I mean? And then facial recognition is being used on a government computer. And we come to define the CFA so broadly that tricking the system with your makeup or your hat or whatever it is you're doing, um, that, 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 that becomes hacking. Right. Um, so that on the, on the one, on the one extreme, um, on the other extreme, um, imagine that you have adequate security as a company, but you deploy a system that is incredibly easy to gain. It's not that you can hack into it. I mean, it's all the, you know, everything zipped up tight. Everything is, you know, um, all the all the ports are blocked and whatever. But it's just like, you know, the, 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 you're you're ready for a buffer overflow. You're ready for whatever. But you're, you know, you're just you're not. Uh, you just, it's super easy to game it, right? And then people get hurt. Their money gets stolen. They get physically hurt. Uh, they they some opportunity is is denied to them because of gaming. Why shouldn't they be said to fall below the requisite standard of, of, of security? Why, why isn't their security just as poor as it would be if they left a peer-to-peer, um, you know, uh, open on, uh, on, on their sensitive uh, documents? You, you see what I mean? And so um, it's, it's, it's really interesting to think. It's all you have to do is subtly shift the way that you, um, the way that you steal information or the way that you... Um, uh, hack, you know, the way that you, you way you cause a system to behave the way that you want rather than the way that's intended, you subtly shift that. Um, and all of a sudden, you, you neither have an adequate security standard in terms of holding companies accountable, but you also have things that are quite over-inclusive. And I got to say that just quickly, it's, it's especially dangerous, especially pernicious, because in the world of artificial intelligence, one of the primary ways that we hold systems and companies and governments accountable is that third-party researchers come in, and they show that the system is biased. You know, it it it, it just it just disproportionately has a negative impact on on uh, people of color, on women. Um, it uh, it uh, it's not safe um, because uh, it overreacts or underreacts to stimulus in the world, and it has a, you know, and it's a driverless car. You know, th- these things are done by third parties. They're they're coming. They're they're journalists. They're they're researchers. Um, and, uh, and, and if that can be construed as hacking, that's a problem, right? Because, because it, it chills uh, the, the, the accountability mechanism we have to determine whether AI is fair and safe. Um, and uh, now, you know, ultimately, um, the case law itself could settle this out because while there's no research exemption to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, there has been some movement in the courts, uh, hopefully in that direction. Um, but but it's the but David mentioned this. It's the ambiguity that's the problem. 
It's the ambiguity that's the problem. The, the fact you don't know. I mean, I remember attending a talk by a prominent journalist who was one of the main people to be holding sort of systems accountable, the lead author on the ProPublica story. And she made a joke at, a, at an event that I was at where she was describing her methodology. And she said, I'm probably in violation of the federal law. You know what I mean? And she went out, she went ahead, but what journalists maybe didn't go ahead. I'm wondering if you could expand a bit more on the ways in which uh, the the biases of machine learning come up that uh, researchers would be able to look into were um, legislators and policymakers and folks with that power were to take some of the uh, suggestions and considerations within your article into account, how that would uh, work to solve some of the issues that you see within machine learning that are biased, are racist, are um, sexist, and things like this. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I I think a really good example of specifically talking about the bias and that could be present is, you know, we we discuss in in the paper, like audit-based testing um, in this example was for like real estate. Um, And so, so there, Uh, A good example of what is currently a very hot debate topic for the CFA is violating website terms of service and whether just that in itself uh, is a violation. And so for all this audit-based testing, you inherently have to create fictitious profiles of people on these websites, which is clearly uh, violating uh, any good website's terms of service. and that is a barrier in itself right there to be pursuing that very basic type of research that is very easily can verify if there's a bias in in a system. And I I think that's a a very good and very simple example of the type of behavior that is getting, uh, or the type of research uh, that is getting potentially chilled by this, um, by a a federal anti-hacking law something that a journalist might not consider when simply doing this audit testing. This may be a bit of a silly question, but as I was reading the examples of how we can trick robots, I thought about uh, a time when my friends and I held our phones, held my phone up to each of us and just kept saying a product over and over again, like soy milk, soy milk, to see if we could trick the advertisements to be all soy milk. And you know, of course, as a layperson, I'm thinking like, oh, this can't, I can't get prosecuted for this. Um, but I'm curious about how your article or how the folks you've worked with would categorize that situation. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, um, imagine, imagine that you were doing it um, because you uh, uh, had some financial gain. Do you see what I mean? So you weren't, you weren't just doing it just to, to screw around. You were doing it to, um, you're trying to sell soy milk or you're trying to get clicks on soy milk or, or make it look like it's been clicked upon right because you're a, you're an intermediary for for soy milk advertiser um you know then then you're doing it for financial gain you know what i mean you're you're you're, you're gaming the system you're probably violating the terms of service you're not hacking into anything you know you're not bypassing a security protocol so that's a that would be a very good example just if you um because the the, the thing about the computer fraud and abuse act is you, you do have to do some mischief. Unless it's a government computer, you have to do something. The, the mere violation of a terms of service without more shouldn't land you in, in, in CFAA territory. Um, but, you know, well, some courts seem to 
certainly a lot of prosecutors in some courts seem to think it should. But if you read the letter of the law, like you, if it's not a government computer, you got to do something, you know, um, uh, pernicious. And so, so if we just tweak your hypothetical a little, I think we get a good example. So for the folks listening at home, if you'd like to trick a robot, there you go. All right. So another question I have is that in the article, uh, you explained that the problem of malicious actors attempting to attack machine learning models is still technologically young. Uh, we know that the law is often reactive rather than preemptive. How can lawyers, computer scientists, and policy advocates convince decision makers to act on research like yours before these issues become major threats? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll put that one to Ryan. He has much more experience interacting with the the key players in this arena. Well, I mean, I don't know, David. I think hope, hopefully um, more and more. So David David graduated a couple of years ago now. When did you graduate, David? In in 2019? Uh, 19? No. I, I just started my second second year as an associate. Second year. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, 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 yeah. people, people who are listening to this podcast should hire David because he is – Got great experience and knowledge. Um, so, you, you know, uh, the the truth is is that um, you know, uh, technology provides particular challenges for policymakers, and they're not always the ones that you think. And so, a very common um, claim about technology is that it, it outpaces the law. You know what I mean? Like technology is too fast for the law, you know, and the law is always trying to keep up and so on. Um, I got to say that in my experience, that's not usually the problem. Do you know what I mean? Like usually the problem is not that technology is outpacing law. It's that there's a problem of political will um, that, you know, that there, that, that somebody has sort of, um, misunderstood the technology or only understood one one particular stakeholder's conception of the technology. And so if you look at the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, like, you know, here, here the law, the technology is outpacing, you know, the CFAA 40 years later. Do you see what I mean? And, and, if, and if the CFAA doesn't change to update what security it means 40 years later, it's not because technology was so fast and it takes 40 years to change the law, it's because law enforcement loves the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and they don't want to see any changes to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's what that's what would be the, the reason, you know? Um, another example is uh, 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 drones, you know, like, you know, we've been told that, oh, you know, the, the, the law just can't keep up with the drones are so amazing and they can't keep up. I mean, setting aside the fact that like, you know, we, we strapped cameras to pigeons in, in, in World War One, but, but setting that aside for a moment, the truth of the matter is, is that the jurisdictions that went ahead with, with drone testing for drone delivery, all the places that we were told that the drone industry was going to disappear to because the United States like had not, you know, let enough people do drones and not, not, and the, the Federal Aviation Administration had been too lax, um, you know, they're no closer to drone delivery. Why? Because technology is super hard. Robots are super hard and it has nothing to do with the law. You know, and so, um, so I think what I think what policymakers, you know, need to do is they they need to appreciate um, that that uh, that in regulating technology, they have to hear from a range of stakeholders, particularly impartial ones who don't have, um, you know, uh, don't have a robot dog in the race, um, 
And also, um, they, they should be mindful of the fact that usually the relevant values are already well understood and established. And the rule of the law really is, is not, not to completely reinvent everything, but rather make sure that those important values are, are put forward. And so here, what I'd like them to do is to say, look, we got to hold um, companies responsible for releasing dangerous products into the world. You know what I mean? I mean, if your product is biased in 2020, you know, which they many, many, many are, come on. You know, how many decades has it been since the civil rights movement? Are you kidding me? You know, um, uh, if, you're, if your technology is dangerous, because you haven't thought about that edge case where someone could put stickers on the ground and cause a driverless car accident, you know, the law should throw a book at you. You know, it's, 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 these values are not, you know, it's, it's often such a, 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 it's leisure domain to talk in terms of the way that, that, that the technology disrupts the norms and the values and we need to think about well, where we are now and everything else. You know, no, that is a delay tactic. Right. We know we know, uh, you know, we know what our values are. We know what we should be doing. And the question is, do we have the political will to do it um, anyway? I think the utility of this is to be, you know, now that David and I and our co-authors have said hacking law is inadequate. Here's exactly why. You know what I mean? And so on. Then if they ever get the political will, they can pick up this document and have a roadmap for how to fix it. But we can't give them the political will. We can't, you know, unentrench law enforcement interests. You know, it's just, it just, that's not in, in our in our capability as as uh, scholars. So I think you've alluded to some of this um, in in the interview already, but we wanted to ask for yourselves and your co-authors why. Um, this article now, and to the extent that it is a call to action to industry and policymakers and lawmakers, why this call to action and this article in this sort of moment in history? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one definite motivating factor is you have now in this, you know, as you said, moment in history, all these different, very consumer accessible services and products that are using this potentially vulnerable, potentially biased, oftentimes biased technology that kind of requires the, the type of testing that right now is ambiguous, right now is violating the CFAA. And so, you know, rewind the clock 15 years, you know, while, you know, while people could have predicted that this will be an issue, you know, it's not uh, every day that 15 years ago, 10 year olds were able to download services or apps or something that actively employ this kind of vulnerable technology. And so we're, we're there now. So much of what we use every day is, you know, in, in my opinion, requiring this type of testing in this type of research uh, to spot vulnerabilities. So I think it was just uh, the, the confluence of the, the technology has evolved to a place that it is reaching consumers in large numbers now. And so we, we should probably have some more, you know, we should green light the security researchers a little more um, is uh, my opinion of why the paper was a, kind of came about at this time. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, that, that both greenlight the research and also um, hold uh, 
companies accountable for their and governments accountable for their products. I mean, those are the two big ones, you know, because it's it's a double-edged sword. It's like, on the one hand, you worry about over-enforcing researchers. And on the other hand, you worry about having a definition of security uh, that is not comprehensive. So in an ideal world, you want to make sure that Tesla can't that the that the Tesla can easy, easily be gained, gamed, right? But at the same time, you want people to be able to test the Tesla to make sure that it isn't easily gamed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so and so isn't that interesting, right? So one and um and that, I don't know how to quite we don't quite know how to thread that that needle. Um, the other thing I would say is that the Tech Policy Lab, generally speaking, tries to pick technologies that are far enough along to be obviously important in their and in, in to have a societal impact, um, but not so far along that they're entirely path dependent. Um, and so that that's why we select the technologies that we do and why we wrote about augmented reality a bunch of years ago and why we wrote about uh, adversarial machine learning, you know, one or two years ago and why we're writing about brain machine interfaces now. You know what I mean? We're just we're just trying to pick it at it. You don't always do that correctly, and and you get it wrong. But it's like you know, we try to pick technologies that are that are far enough along to 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 know that, that they matter, but not so far along as that is that they just the ship has sailed, so to speak. Thank you for that. And for our final question, um, we wanted to shift gears a little bit and ask for your advice. Um, from both of you, many of our student, many of our listeners are students, and we wanted to ask if you have any advice for law students who are interested in pursuing careers in technology law. Ryan, go for it. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I, I was going to say David, go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll start off, and then David can can go. Um, I mean, what you know, I think I think that um, that uh, uh, mo- most schools, but not all of them, have have some t- uh, technology uh, offerings these days. Um, and if your school happens not to, I mean, if you're at a place like Berkeley, uh, or University of Washington or Georgetown or Colorado, you know I mean? There's like all, there's all these places that have these incredible law and technology programs, you know what I mean? Um, that are just world-class, uh, and, but there are other places that have one or two just really good faculty members. And even if you're at a place that doesn't have a, a faculty member that thinks of themselves as being law and technology, you know, look across campus, you know, if, you, if you're if you're part of a university system, there are other departments. And I increasingly hear stories that, that warm my heart about students on their own initiative going to another to another student in another department that they met at like, you know, a party back when we used to have parties. Um and uh, and and or that they that they knew through through somebody or they just admired something they saw about them, whatever happens to be, and saying, "Hey, do you want to team up on like a paper?" I mean, I'm seeing that more and more, and it's just like I love it. I mean, it's like because because we created structures like the Tech Policy Lab in order to facilitate more top down by putting students into teams, but that doesn't have to be top down. You know, it could also just be. Um, peers, you know, peers going to each other. And and, 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 I, and so what I would say is, you know, look at what your school has to offer and, and, and look across campus and find the people, not just the technologists, but, you know, the sociologists of technology, the anthropologists of technology, the, the people who are interested in these questions, the science technology studies folks, communications, information science, and see if maybe you can team up because there's a lot that the law can lend. There's, the, you know, the, 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 the law is interesting because you know, technology is fascinating. You can look at it from any number of, of lenses. But, you know, where 
where do our decisions get get carried out in a, and implemented into policy that affects real people's lives, right? Um, one of my favorite quotes from a law review article is from Robert Cover's Violence in the Word, which opens legal interpretation takes place on a field of pain and death. And that dramatic, <laughs> that dramatic opening sentence, while having little to do with technology, says everything you need to know about law, which is that when judges interpret law, when a judge makes a decision about somebody, you know, she's making a decision about their property, about their liberty, about their status, in, in ways that affect real people and their real lived experience. And, and, you know, and so law and policy is the place where we figure out what actually to do and what to make mandatory and what to prohibit and where to invest massive resources that still continue to be greater than anything that individual corporate uh, or foundation um, donors can do. And so, you know, it, it just, I would just say you have a lot to add, like, you know, you, you, you're studying um, something that people don't, understand and you're studying the levers of power and so you should go to those other places and say i want to learn from you but you know what um if you i mean i'll give you i'll give you a great example sorry i'm going to go off this is like a, a whole thing about that about it so you can edit this out and just be like i cannot believe professor kayla would not shut up about this so just be like edit it out um man imagine being in class with him man i know <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly exactly but like think about this for a moment you have a bunch of people who for years have been studying fairness, accountability, and transparency within algorithms. You know what I mean? So these, these are people who are thinking about what makes an algorithm fair, what is, what is, how do we balance transparency, efficacy, and so on. You know who's been thinking about that for hundreds of years? People who work in civil, criminal, and constitutional procedure. Right? What do, we, what do, what do people do in criminal and civil procedure other than try to figure out how to balance competing uh, values like efficiency and uh, and fairness and, and devising conceptions of fairness and devising um, uh, mechanisms for ensuring accountability and participation. I mean, what have we been doing for hundreds of years? You know, I get so angry whenever I hear technologists say things like, you know, well, you know, lawyers, they're fine, but, you know, they don't build anything. They say, you know, they don't lawyers don't build anything. And I'm like, yeah, we built the rule of law. <laughs> you know, like you're welcome. <laughs> Not that it isn't falling apart right now uh, uh, around us, but the point of the matter is, is that you know you have value, they have value. Go meet them. Um, yeah. All right, I'll stop. Yeah. No. Of course. Uh, you know, e echo that. And I was, you know, I, I don't have the, you know, best tips because I happened to be at a school that had just like this great program already completely built around me. Um, and all I had to do was plug in, um, you know, but so, so obviously if anything like that is around you, take advantage of it. Um, and, and of course, even outside of that, I, I worked with other professors outside of the tech policy labs um, on kind of tech policy adjacent work um, that they were interested in, but just didn't have time to research or, or delve into. So, you know, take whatever you can that's even, you know, tech policy-esque. Uh, and then, you know, it, it's 
there's not a, a ton of opportunity to to leave law school straight into like a tech policy advisory, you know, academia role. But um, even wherever you end up, like, so I do IP litigation. Um, and so obviously there's a, tons of technology involved, not a ton of policy, but you can be, you can carry over your your policy, I guess, knowledge into wherever you end up. So it's like when when there's any, CFA issue at work. Like I, I, I've been on all the issues so far at the firm, um, which has been like super cool. So you can bring whatever specialty you've developed into wherever you end up. Um, Cause not a ton of law firm, you know, private practitioners are sitting around thinking about policy. Um, so, you know, I, I'd say wherever you end up, if it doesn't have to be, or if it doesn't happen to be, strictly tech policy, like still continue to be that person because um, there's a ton of need for it in firms as well. I have to ask because you <laughs> mentioned you attended class with Professor Kahlo and I was wondering if y'all could expand on uh, how you met each other and then how you continue to grow your relationship with now publishing a paper together. No, I mean, look, I mean, you, you know, you, 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 uh, uh, we have a lot of great students. Um, and, um, and so, uh, and, and those that are, are both, um, excellent and express, uh, a deep interest in technology policy, right. Um, that we try to, we try to get, um, and like students like David, we, we try to get, um, them involved. Um, and what, what we do at the lab is we, is we, handpick a couple of just great students um, and we pair them up in, in interdisciplinary teams, which is a largely a function of faculty driven research interests, but it also has to dovetail with what, you know, um, uh, what they, what the, the student themselves wants, wants to do. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, you know, we, he, I had uh, David in class and he was great. And, uh, um, and when he expressed an interest in tech policy, I was, I was, uh, uh excited and then, uh, put him on a team to look at adversarial machine learning and law and, um, his contributions were, were very significant. And so of course he became a co-author, but it's pretty, it's pretty organic. You know, it's sort of like, um, I, I wish we could provide, I mean, the, te the tech policy lab is small. Um, and so at any given time, we only have a few, a few students. Now we also have a center around misinformation. Um, called the Center for an Informed Public, and so I actually have, at the moment, I just have one student, right? Yeah, I just have I have one LLM, or no, I'm sorry, one PhD candidate in law, and one student who are working at the lab. Uh, but then I have another student who is working at the center, um, and so it's it really and and we it's it's just a function of and but but many other law students at at University of Washington are able to to come to our events and get involved and stuff like that, but it's. It is. It is. I wish it were more commonplace that we could that people would have David's experience of being able to actually just roll up your sleeves, do deep research with across interdisciplinary lines, and have a, a a paper come out of it. Um, you know that that would be that would be the gold standard. Um, but I think we'd have to scale up uh, in ways that we that are difficult in order to accomplish that. But at Berkeley, you all have a lot of that. I mean, you have so many people working on this stuff that you can. Um, and 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 so so much so many of them are are, are oriented across the whole whole campus. Um, you're really lucky to be where you are. 
Professor Kalo and David, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights with us. We're very grateful and our listeners will be as well. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. The BTLJ podcast is brought to you by podcast editors Andy Zachrich and Haley Broughton. Our executive producer is BTLJ senior online content editor Alan Holder. BTLJ's editor-in-chief is Emma Lee. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, write us at btljpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to read Professor Kalo and Mr. O'Hare's article or explore more of BTLJ scholarship, it is available online at btlj.org. The information presented here does not constitute legal advice. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only.